Hello and welcome. You are listening to the second episode of Pride Perspectives. On this show, we will bring together a rotating guest list of Hashtra community members to talk about their lived experiences and wide-ranging viewpoints. This fall, we'll be tackling a wide range of topics from the 2020 election to the year in hindsight to Hashtra history and everything in between. We'll be speaking with experts in all of these fields from the Hashtra Pride. My name is Jill Atkinson, my pronouns are she, her, and I'll be your host. Now let's get on to our guests. Today, our theme is the 2020 presidential election, Gen Z votes. For our second episode, we'll be having a conversation about navigating the United States presidential election with our three panelists. I am joined today by Dr. Tamika Robinson, an associate professor for rhetoric and public policy here at Hofstra. Dr. Robinson is also the director of our nationally ranked speech and debate program. Dr. Rosanna Parati, an associate professor for political science, also here at Hofstra, and Max Kush, a graduate assistant for the Office of Student Advocacy and Prevention Awareness, and a master's ED candidate in the Higher Education Leadership and Policy Studies program. Before we begin, please introduce yourselves, your pronouns, and any other information you feel is important for our Hofstra community members to know. Dr. Robinson, feel free to start. Hi, I am Dr. Tamika Robinson, and thank you for having me here. My pronouns are she, her, and actually my title just changed. I am now a professor of rhetoric and public advocacy. I just received the promotion in September, so thank you again for having me here. Awesome. Congratulations, Dr. Robinson. That's wonderful. Dr. Parati, would you like to introduce yourself next? Yes, my name is Rosanna Parati. Uh, I am an associate professor of political science. Uh, in the political science department, I have a range of responsibilities. I'm the director of the LEAP program, um, the internship program, and um, all kinds of Washington-related uh, activities. All right, uh, my name is Max Kutch. Uh, as Jill said, I am a grad assistant here. Uh, also for today, I was here as an undergrad during our 2016 uh, debate experience at Hofstra. I've also volunteered in state Senate campaigns around the area. Obviously, I have uh, significantly less experience than our other two panelists, but I'll try and provide whatever Gen Z perspective that I can today. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. Excellent. Thank you all so much for being here today. We are super excited for this episode and to chat with you all about this upcoming election. So I'll give you each an opportunity to have the first word at least once. Once everyone has shared their initial answers, they can feel free to follow up or discuss something someone has said. Try and keep your answers brief so that we have time for a larger discussion. Let's get started. Looking ahead, many of our students are first-time presidential voters in this election and come from a vast array of states. A few of them have expressed a high level of anxiety about making their vote count. I would be very interested to hear your ideas and suggestions on how they can best make a plan to vote. Dr. Parati, would you like to start with this question? Uh, yes. First of all, it's important uh, as they're planning to go out and vote to seek accurate information. Uh, make sure that when you're learning more about the candidates and about the issues, that you are paying attention to something that is fact-checked and curated and not simply to something that's posted on Facebook. Um, 
because you're going to get conspiracy theories on Facebook and you may not even realize you're being exposed to it. At the point at which we're going to, um, we're going to broadcast this podcast, this will be very important. And first-time voters are oftentimes really unconfident about their, their handle or their hold on the facts. So that's the first thing. Second thing about making a plan is for our students, for, uh, for Gen Z voters, for, for college students, um, I would say generally be realistic about your plan. Make sure that it's something that you can do. Uh, stick to it as much as you can, but be flexible and have a plan B. Um, you may decide, you may be thinking that you want to vote by absentee ballot, but what happens if you don't receive your absentee ballot in time? Um, you have to have a plan B. You need to maybe apply again for an absentee ballot, or it, you could do this in New York, contact your parents and, and, and allow them to pick up your absentee ballot and send it to you, let's say by FedEx. But do not be deterred and do not delay because now there are some deadlines. Um, my, my third piece of advice is do it right now. It's important to get on the stick and do this and not procrastinate. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Parati. Dr. Robinson? To echo some of the things that Dr. Parati said, it is very important to know what your plan is, but also be very mindful of the deadlines. Several states have different deadlines, so research your home state and know what is the deadline, not just for applying for the absentee ballot, but also for returning the absentee ballot if that is what you are choosing to do. Also make sure that you follow all of the directions of the absentee ballot. Make sure that you sign in the appropriate places. Make sure you use the right color ink. Make sure that you really pay attention to all of those details because you don't want your ballot to not count because of your failure to follow the directions appropriately. Make sure that you also, as, as I already said, know when it has to be postmarked to go back to those states. And as Dr. Parati said, having a backup plan to where if you haven't received it, if you haven't already applied, make a plan now on what it is that you want to do to where you can exercise your rights to vote. Max, your opinion? Sure. Um, real quick. I would just, uh, obviously everything that was already said, um, just making sure that you are checking your voter registration um, even before all that, right? Uh, Vote.org or your own individual town's website, depending on how good the infrastructure is in your town. Um, I'm a Connecticut voter and through my town of Fairfield, I can check my registration uh, through the registrar and I can actually track if my ballot's been received. Uh, now, obviously state by state, town by town, that's gonna differ. Uh, but, you know, as early as possible, making sure that you are checking what your state and local laws are for early voting. If you have a Dropbox, for example, that you can drop an absentee ballot at, um, just making sure that you're familiar with whatever state and local guidelines are. Um, and of course, if you're lucky enough to live in an area that will allow you to uh, check receipt of those ballots, um, you know, just be diligent about it. Great. Dr. Parati, you had something extra to say? I, yeah, I wanted to just jump in and say that um, if you're not sure where to get the information about the dates, about the existence of a drop of box, about the regulations in your state or your county, go to your state's 
Board of Elections. Just type in a search, New York State Board of Elections. That will take you to the Board of Elections for the state, and it will have links for all the counties, which, um, which are really the places, the county boards of elections are the ones that determine the rules for exactly, you know, whether they're boxes, whether, uh, where you can go on an early voting date and so forth. So again, as you, if you're searching state, Board of Elections, and then you can go from there. Be persistent. Wow. Excellent advice. I can definitely tell why we have you three experts in this space today, and we are truly grateful. Okay, on to our next question. Switching it up a little. How has the political rhetoric this election been different from past elections? I would particularly be interested to hear your thoughts on the debates thus far. I'd like to hear from Dr. Robinson first, as this seems to be your avenue of expertise. Yes, this year has certainly been an interesting one, especially if you're looking at the presidential debates and even the vice presidential debate. While there was certainly a lot more policy being discussed during the vice presidential debate, there was still a lot of commentary that has come out of it about the interruptions, about the use of mics and muting mics and those types of things, which has fundamentally changed. And part of that is due to COVID and how things are set up, but also there is a little bit difference in the tenor as far as respect between the candidates and civil discourse to where even in past elections, even though the candidates do fundamentally disagree on quite a lot, that's why they're on different sides, there is a lot less of the discussion about the commonalities and about what is best for the American people. And it seems to be a little bit nastier as far as the the tone about how they're approaching and even some of the things about candidates' families and those types of things that typically have been left out of the conversation during debates. Now, certainly in advertisements and stuff, they've always been a little kind of mudslinging, but it's been a little bit different this year. And I think that the American people are responding to that in both positive and negative ways. We're seeing early voting turnouts to be um, huge and it's astronomical numbers as in, in past years. And again, part of that could be because of COVID-19, but some of it is also people are more energized to go out and vote for whichever candidate that they are voting for because of the way the rhetoric is going and it is getting them more like I said, for good or bad, it's getting them more out to vote and more concerned about where we are going as a country. The thing that has struck me so much is the incivility um, in the discourse, incivility in the first debate and, and in a lot of, and it's not um, symmetrical. It's more on one side. We have to acknowledge that. The incivility has, of course, attracted people who are given to uncivil um, discourse. But it's also given permission to those of us who have always been more reserved and more um, uh, more careful and more norm-oriented in their, our speaking, given 
these folks permission to sort of dispense with that with whatever niceties and polite politeness and respectfulness they might normally have in their political conversation and to to dive to the bottom and to personal attacks and to the use of ugly language um, and so it's the discourse itself i think has brought into the arena of political action uh, people who were not so terribly concerned about politics and about public service and have thrown their voices into the conversation um, about things that they're not that they really don't know a whole lot about and but that they have every right to participate in but in a civil way um, and i see this in my own neighborhood i live on the south shore of long island and my neighborhood is changing old folks are moving out new folks are coming in i want to hang on to those new folks and i want to stay here but i want to be able to live on my street and be able to talk about things with my neighbors but if all of us are listening to this uncivil language it means that some of us are not going to be able to resist the temptation to feel permitted to imitate it and that i think there's a great poverty in that um, and if I, I know I'm going a little longer, if I could just make one other um, point, that um, debates are all well and good. And we learn from debates about how the other side thinks. But the only way I think we can move forward in developing public policy solutions to the problems that we have is to deliberate about the potential uh, solutions to the problems that we face. And deliberating means listening to one another, listening to our underlying concerns, looking for both common and conflicting interests. And I guarantee you, conservatives and liberals, Democrats and Republicans, people of all different ethnicities and races have do have common concerns, even though we're not highlighting them right now, about things like healthcare and immigration and, um, and, their, and basic income protections. So deliberating means getting those underlying interests out into the open. We have to look past the debate, the highlighting of conflicting positions. And as citizens, we have to talk with one another about how you get to solving problems. There's a way of speaking that we are pushing by the wayside um, in our society right now as we focus on debating. That way of speaking, deliberating, I think, is what we specialize in in higher education. And that's why I've, I've never for a moment given up my education. And I encourage our students not to become discouraged. Thank you so much, Dr. Parati. I don't think I could have said that any better myself. Uh, Max? I think that when it comes to, right, the sort of normalization of, of this different type of language, right, um, it's been really interesting to see, especially in, you know, in recent weeks, right, you've seen Senators uh, Cornyn from Texas, Senator Sass, um, you know, trying to sort of split the difference between um, party loyalty, right, but also sort of having support for those norms when it comes to communication. Um, 
and I, I think that that's been something really interesting to watch this election, um, specifically, you know, as we as we sort of come down to come down to the the end of it here. <laughs> Great, thank you. So, on to the next question. Gen Z, as we stated earlier, is going to be voting in a larger number this election. What accounts for the distinct Gen Z political viewpoint and how will it affect this election? Max, I'd like you to start. Sure. I think that Gen Z um, has had an interesting period to come of political age, right? Uh, the Obama-Trump presidencies uh, are, are two massively historical presidencies for different reasons, right? Um, in addition, we've had a tremendous amount of economic instability, uh, increasing political polarization, right? So while Gen Z is more, you know, progressive um, and more, you know, ethnically racially diverse than previous generations, right? There is also this sort of decreasing sense of party identification. I think that's partially due to those factors that I mentioned earlier, right? Where it's difficult to you know, feel so go team uh, about, you know, a political party when, you know, as you've been coming of political age, you've seen some of the failures or perceived failures of that system. Um, I also think that things that are really big in the Gen Z viewpoint, right, are, um, you know, the student debt crisis and especially climate issues, right? These are larger existential issues um, for, you know, people my age and people younger specifically. Um, We've seen candidates like uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez rise to national prominence, not you know, in small part due to Gen Z support. Um, and you can see that this is a generation concerned with existential change. Um, I also think that you know, something that informs the viewpoint of people my age and younger is the way that we consume and disseminate information is different than it used to be. We're sort of in this golden age of information where it's easier than ever to access your representatives' voting records, their positions on different issues. Uh, it's much harder to hide things. And I think that, you know, that's, that speaks to a larger cultural uh, thing. But certainly, um, it's getting tougher and tougher to run sort of generic campaigns because we have such access to information. And that's changing the way that candidates have to communicate with voters. And it's changing the way that voters communicate with each other. And I think that, you know, as it becomes easier to network online and then take that action into real life, you know, you've seen with, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, whether it's them, whether it's uh, Fight for 15 or whomever, there are a lot of movements that will start uh, with grassroots organizing, um, you know, with real political organizing, but also with a strong online component, right? And I think that uh, when you come from this sort of unique generational point of view, um, it changes political communication. And, um, you know, our current political landscape is, is starting to reflect that. Um, and I think that this, again, going a little long here, but I think that this particular presidential election has really encapsulated that as we've been forced to move digital, right, we are seeing um, these institutions and these candidates, many of whom have done things the same way for a very long time, having to adapt to a different you know, digital landscape. And I don't want to be reductive just, you know, saying, oh, Gen Z likes electronics more, but it, it is a pretty profound force, right, in society and in politics. Um, and then there are other issues, of course, that Gen Z feels strongly about. Like I said, those climate issues, um, you know, whether it's, uh, 
you know, incarceration, mass incarceration, whether it's, um, you know, native rights. And these are things that uh, from the Gen Z point of view, you know, speaking much more generally, um, they view as many older political actors having failed on. Um, so I think that that's, that's a, a, a brief summation of, of Gen Z and the sort of unique viewpoint. But I think that especially they're really profound this election as we've been forced to adapt. Great, Max. Thank you so much. That was really insightful. Dr. Robinson, your opinion? So as Max has already pointed out, this is the most diverse group of voters. Gen Z, I mean, according to the Pew Research Center, about one in five eligible Gen Z voters are Hispanic, and that is unprecedented um, as far as what we've seen in the past. We've also seen, as in with the millennial generation, same thing as applied, and even more so as far as civic engagement. They are more civically engaged, they're more politically aware of what's going on. And as Max has also pointed out, they're more willing to put their bodies behind the, the policies that they believe in and they are passionate about. So whether it's immigration, whether it is Black Lives Matter, whether it is um, police reform, whether it is environmental issues, whatever it is, they're more willing to not just settle for, we're going to allow the former structures or the in-place structures to deal with it because they're dissatisfied with the ways in which this has, has happened. That's not to say that they don't believe that policy is important, but they would much rather a bottom-up approach to policy as opposed to a top-down of just trusting that we've elected everybody, they're going to make the decisions that are best for us. So they are voting in bigger numbers because they still believe in the electoral process, but they're also saying we're going to hold our political officials accountable. And some of that is through not just these grassroots organizations, but it's also protests. It's also in, you know, disrupting some of the conversations and that creates its own, you know, disparity or, or interesting situation between previous generations and Gen Z as far as whether or not there is recognition or acceptance of the tactics that are being used but they're willing to disrupt it. I mean, we've looked at, you know, TikTok um, and how that had such an impact in the, the rally that President Trump put on and the impact of that to where these are things that a lot of previous generations have never even thought about doing as far as how do we use the tools that we have to disrupt and to change the discourse to where they really just want their voices to be heard and for elected officials to really back up and be accountable for their constituents and what they're doing. It's not just business as usual and we'll just accept policy the way it is. It is saying, okay, for good or bad, they're saying, okay, here's what we want. Here's what we believe in. And, and yes, there is a definitely a little bit more movement towards progressivism, but that doesn't mean that the conservative students in Gen Z are not just as active and just as adept of using those same tools to get their messages across. So I think that it's very interesting to watch how the landscape of the political conversation has changed with the inclusion of Gen Z and seeing how that plays out in the public sphere. Wow, excellent. Gen Z is definitely about their receipts. Thank you so much. Dr. Parati. 
Um, I will try not to go over um, anything that the, the two, you know, my two colleagues here have said. I, I think it's so interesting that we have, um, we have Max, who is a true expert. This is his expertise uh, in Gen Z. And I would venture to say that Professor Robinson is maybe like almost a generation younger than I am. So now we got the oldster here. Um, and uh, so of course we acknowledge that de demographically this generation is so much different from my generation. And I, sometimes I tell students, Remember how demographically your generation is from mine. If you're asking yourselves why the people who are teaching you don't look like you, part of that reason has to just do with the demographics. Part of it is absolutely discrimination, but part of it is that we're changing. Um, and of course, the, the, the proportion of Latinos in the electorate, I, I think is absolutely correct. I want to add too that well, let me let me hold that for a moment. Um, I I want to add, I guess, as the oldest member of this threesome, um, a request or a plea that pe that that people in Gen Z, that our students, having different kinds of strengths than people in my generation. First of all try to listen to us and be patient because um, younger people, and I think about my own children who are, who are not much older than college students, um, have certain strengths, the strengths that Max talked about. Um, they're very adept at technology. They understand the tactics of grassroots mobilization in a way that we can't we, because we, we simply don't have the technological background. But I also want to add that older folks have different kinds of strengths. Um, we may not be as quick on our feet, but we do tend to have, um, to have analytical abilities that are very helpful in, in activism. Our differences come about because of our different experiences, the, the experiences in our generation. And you just can't, you can't blame someone for the experience or the lack of experience they may have had in their past. You can blame them for not being empathetic and listening. Um, what I think is most valuable about the experience we enjoy in our community, and, and I, I really, I thank Kevin all the time for this, is our ability to have cross-generational friendships and um, the ease with which we can learn, for I can learn from young people um, in my classes and from my retired colleagues with whom I am equally close and I have an equally um, deep respect. Um, I, I actually had Max in class, we could talk a little bit about, about our community. And I remember in that class, we would have these conversations and there was kind of a turning point that year where I said, you know, they're thinking about things in a way that I've never thought about them before. And I didn't really think that um, students would be quite so, what's the word, forthcoming about their complaints about the system. And, um, and I'm listening to their complaints. And 
it was a real learning experience for me. And I hope that, they, I mean, they've been listening to us on and on and on for, you know, throughout their time in school. So I'm not sure it was as much of a learning experience. But the important thing is that we listen um, to each other. And so in closing, I would say that um, I agree that the, the tactics and the expertise of folks in Gen Z are different from those in my own generation. My own generation is more interested in institutional, in institutions, keeping them up and reforming them. But I wanna caution that it is equally important to engage in institutional reform. Um, reform of the rules, reform within the system, as it is to have that pressure from the outside. Um, if you let it go, at grassroots activism and don't follow through with voting and changing laws and maybe changing the constitution, then all of, I don't wanna say all of the activism will have been for naught, but it'll be much, much harder to achieve our goals. And so working with the institutions is something for which you really need people in older generations you know, to help and to be sympathetic and to be allies. Max, you had something additional? Yeah, um, thank you, Professor Ferrati. Yes, uh, that class actually definitely informed uh, a lot of the ways that I interact with, um, you know, politics and public opinion. Uh, so thank you uh, for that. Um, I also just want to say, as a, as a follow-up to what we've discussed, um, there's definitely a, a double-edged sword to the availability of information, the availability and the accessibility of discourse, right? And And I think that there's sort of a fast twitch, um, you know, instinct towards backlash, let's say, uh, in Gen Z, especially in online communities, right? And I, I think that it's important, um, as, as Professor Parati said, that, you know, to, to be able to think critically about, um, you know, your positions and, and think critically about parsing um, the information that you get to make sure that you are fully aware of uh, your political impact, uh, fully aware of the ways that you interact with the various systems that you're in. I think that a higher education setting is a great way to learn about, you know, being part of a lot of different things, right? You might be part of um, a multitude of communities, you know, especially here at Hofstra, you might be a part of, you know, uh, you might be a political science major, or, you know, you might be a commuting student, and you can be a bajillion different things. Um, and, and thinking critically about how those identities overlap and how they inform, you know, how you think, I think goes a long way towards having really uh, educational, productive and, and, and interesting discourse. Uh, and that doesn't mean compromising on your, your profoundly held beliefs, but it definitely means a little bit of uh, introspection, I think. Excellent, Max. Thank you all so much. That was just great information, I think, and really great hindsight. I think from three different types of generation as generations, as far as like how we can continue to kind of move forward um, and learning from each other. Okay, on to the next question. With back-to-back -back presidential elections that feature a potential Supreme Court confirmation, the current discussion around court packing and the debate over the Electoral College, do you think that we will see any drastic changes in our institutions, regardless of the election outcome? Dr. Parati, could you start us off? 
That was the, that's the hardest question I think I've heard today for me, um, because we've seen a great deal of norm breaking in the past four years, especially um, the Supreme Court nomination, um, just a lot of lying and incivility, um, incitement to violence. These are things that um, they're not, they don't amount to breaking the law, they amount to breaking long held and long um, respected practices in politics. Um, so, and, and particularly with the Supreme Court, when I when I think about the question, you know, do we need to um, pack the Supreme Court with more uh, justices, or should we? Can we get rid of the electoral colleges? I, I think to myself, there are some changes that I would advocate. There are other there are other changes that I wouldn't advocate. And then there are a whole lot of things that I think are unlikely to happen because actors with vested interests don't want to see the change happen. So for instance, I don't imagine that the Electoral College is going to go away anytime soon uh, because there are a whole bunch of actors who benefit from the existence of that institution. But there are you know, you don't have to amend the Constitution in order to change the way the Electoral College works, and that shouldn't keep us from trying to, to change it at the, through state legislation and simply through um, a grassroots effort at the state level. Um, regarding this, so I don't really think that the Electoral College is really going to change. We're not, I doubt that we're going to amend the Constitution, but I'm and I think it's an uphill climb that we might change the way it works through um, changing active action at the state level, the allocation of electors. I absolutely think it's worth changing the rules at the, trying to change the rules at the state level. With respect to the Supreme Court, there's a norm that has been violated there, a norm that you don't um, uh, make an appointment to the Supreme Court when a, an election is already underway. The way to um, address that norm is, in my own opinion, not to violate another norm, but to impose a, a rule, maybe by statute, maybe by law, um, that would put into law the norm. The, the way you violate norms is because you can, you know, and um, to, in order to keep norms from being violated, it seems to me, we have to enshrine more of them in statute. Um, I also, just one last thing, um, one of the sets of norms that we're so concerned about is um, voter disenfranchisement. Uh, there are laws being passed at the state level and administrative actions happening at the state level that really amount to disenfranchising certain kinds of people that some folks would like to keep from the ballot keep from exercising the ballot. Uh, once again, I think that we can address those norms through reform, uh, in this case, at the national level. I think we need national legislation or maybe even a constitutional amendment to protect the right to vote. After all, it's really not addressed explicitly in the Constitution in a universal sort of way. And um, I think if there is change in the personnel uh, in the House and Senate and in the executive uh, in, in January, that would, it would be my hope that that's one of the first priorities.
Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Parati. Dr. Robinson? I mean, I, in a lot of ways, agree with a lot of what Dr. Parati has said, but I am a little bit more of a, you know, radically changing systems that are outdated and really revisiting why and what, who were the actors who made the original papers and everything else and who was left out of that conversation. And I think that as we've talked about, you know, with Gen Z being more diverse racially and everything else, and same thing with millennials, we've seen each of these generations becoming more and more brown as a lot of, a, a lot of research has looked at. I think that it's important to revisit the, the documents and, and, and really think about how can we have a conversation that invites everyone to the table as opposed to looking at just, you know, and I'm not saying we should just completely abolish everything, but certainly looking at reforming them in ways that is more inclusive and it really does look at, you know, some of those things. It's an imperfect document. It is a, it should be a living and breathing document. And whether that is on the state or the national level, I, I honestly, in this particular thing, I think that it does have to start with on the national level as far as looking at how are these structures put into place and who was left out and who, because of them being left out, have been systemically oppressed by these systems that have existed. So I think that there does need to be some reform, but it can't be the same people who benefit. And as Dr. Parati said, they have vested interests in keeping things the way that they are because they do benefit from it. So that's why it has to be more of a, you know, removal of the, 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 the way in which we discuss it as far as like, you know, just because you benefit from it doesn't mean that we just continue doing it. I mean, that's a, at, at best, that's an appeal to tradition, which is a logical fallacy. That's not why you keep doing things because that's the way it's always been done but rather really having an open and honest conversation about does this benefit the American people as we are now? And as Dr. Parati said, that might be, it might be time for a constitutional conversation about the documents and if it's adding more amendments or you know, whatever it is that needs to happen, it's time for that, it's past time for that conversation to really emerge. And that's going to take some changes on the federal level for those conversations to even start. Excellent. My friend Max, what you got to say about this one? Well, I think that something that's really interesting uh, is how Americans feel about the Supreme Court uh, and its outsized impact on voting rights and, and frankly, disenfranchisement, right? The Supreme Court is routinely one of the most popular government institutions, at least when it comes to, you know, Congress, the president, the Supreme Court, and, and, and yet, that probably speaks more to the popularity of the other branches, but in, in yet the Supreme Court plays a really active role in in those things. Like we said, um, you know, you look at just recent recent decisions like Shelby County v. Holder, uh, Roche v. Common Cause. These these Supreme Court cases that if you aren't familiar with, you know, definitely take a few minutes <laughs> um, and look them up and and, and see how they impact. Uh, you know, they might directly impact you in your community, um, where they the Supreme Court has exacerbated the issues of political, expressly political gerrymandering, right, and uh, voter suppression, um, you know, pretty, pretty blatantly. Personally, me, uh, I think that if, you know, we have a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court majority and we continue that rightward 
sort of track on, on voting rights. Um, and we continue to take steps that are more out of step with public opinion, I think that maybe the appetite for things like court packing would increase. Um, but, you know, as it stands, we see, you know, um, I, don't, I, th I don't remember if it was Gallup or, or which poll it was, but there was a recent poll that showed, um, you know, despite the norm breaking nature of it, that confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett actually had a slim majority support in the American public. Um, I could try and find that before the end of the episode. Um, but, you know, as long as opinion around the Supreme Court is the way it is, I think it's going to be really difficult and probably politically untenable, uh, you know, to radically change the Supreme Court, even though I think out of the three of us, I, I probably feel the strongest about, <laughs> about, about reforming it um, be, because of stuff like that. Um, and I think that Joe Biden, especially on this, is a really interesting figure, given his uh, experience, um, you know, when it comes to Supreme Court confirmations. Um, some of it, you know, noticeably a little, a little spotty. Um, you know, if you, you want to look at the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings, uh, you know, Robert Bork's confirmation, Joe Biden uh, is, has been active and historically important in Supreme Court confirmations for decades. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a little ironic considering how much of an institutionalist he has been over the last decade that he is now running for president at a time where we have these conversations around court packing. Um, and I think that that's, it's going to be fascinating to see politically what he does over the next couple of weeks, probably by the time this podcast airs, uh, in terms of taking more of a concrete position on those issues. Um, as far as the Electoral College, you know, I've been alive for 23 years at the time of this recording, but there have already been two presidential elections where the winner of the popular vote uh, does not take the White House. Um, and it was really close, of course, with Bush v. Kerry. Um, and so, you know, there's things like the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, um, which I think uh, Professor Parati referenced, uh, where we can change the way that electoral uh, college votes are apportioned through statute. Um, and then there's also states like Maine um, that will more precisely apportion their electors. Um, and so, you know, this only applies to very few uh, of you listening, but, you know, make sure that you familiarize yourself with propositions or referenda votes that are on the ballot in your state because frequently there, there is the opportunity for you as a voter to make big, uh, big, big decisions on things like disenfranchisement. We saw that recently in Florida regarding, um, you know, formerly incarcerated people and their right to vote. Um, so I think that, you know, this just sort of goes to everything we've been talking about uh, where you have to be aware of what you are able to civically change, whether through it's whether it's through activism or through voting, um, you know, and and this is one of those things that people think it's out of their hands. But as we've seen recently, um, you know, voting on voting rights is actually really really important. Um, so I, I would I would encourage, as we've said multiple times through the podcast, to just make sure you familiarize yourself with things that are on the ballot in your state. Um, if you're a state like California that has propositions, or even if you're just looking at the positions of the elected officials on the ballot uh, where you are voting. Great. Wow. Thank you so much. Dr. Parati, you had last word? I mean, it goes without saying that in order to achieve the change, we have to vote. We, inst the institutional change, if you're going to change the Constitution, if you're going to pass an amendment to the Constitution, you have to have a Congress that's going to propose it 
two-thirds of each house, and then three-fourths of the state legislatures have to approve, or else there have to be ratifying conventions set up in the, in the um, states and a convention to devise these amendments. Whatever way we do it, it's going to require our work. We can't just go out in the streets and expect it to happen. We have to vote. Dr. Robinson? And I would just add, don't just put your energy into federal elections. Pay attention to local and state elections because that, those are the elections that directly impact you the most. And we know that historically, local elections receive the lowest voter turnout. And those are the ones that directly impact you right then. That doesn't mean don't vote for the federal elections, but keep the same energy for state elections, for local elections, know what's on the ballots, know who's running, what do they represent. Don't just vote along party lines. Honestly, research candidates, research positions, research those amendments or proposals that are being put forth within your communities and be informed voters. It's more like we've already said, Gen Z has more access and disseminates information in a different way. But it also requires you to use that information, seek out some of that information, not just, again, on the federal level, but also on the state and local level. Excellent. Max? Also, I mean, there's things that you can do right here at Hofstra, you know, if you're in person. Uh, Hofstra Votes does an incredible amount of programming, uh, informational. Uh, they have a lot of support for absentee voting. Uh, honestly, if you just look up hofstra.edu slash votes, um, there's a lot of information that is specific just to Hofstra students. Um, and, you know, obviously that's supplemental towards your own state and local, you know, sites and information. But, um, you know, if you are going to be here, if you are going to be uh, voting, just make sure that you're utilizing all the information uh, at your fingertips. You know, as long as you're a college student, um, we are here to help empower you, uh, you know, to exercise your right to vote, especially, you know, if you're a residential student or someone from around the area, uh, there is information available, especially, you know, it's going to be a little late when we do air the podcast, but especially if you are voting absentee, you know, it's even more urgent that you look all that information up. Excellent point, Max. Excellent point. It's so true. We, we have so many great resources, which will also be put into the podcast for you to see and engage with, um, if that should be your need. I have one final question. I'm going to have to ask for quick answers as we are running out of time. This election has been one of, if not the most polarizing in modern day history. Regardless of who wins, how do we move our country forward together again or do we see this as the beginning of what we can expect from election cycles to come? Max, do you want to start us off? Well, I'll be, I'll be brief because I've seen the fewest elections. Um, I think that, you know, there are, there are a lot of issues, uh, as we've said previously, where we have common cause in investing in the future. Um, I'm hopeful that we see um, you know, political discourse become more informative, um, you know, not going back to norms for norms sake, but being constructive on those big issues, whether it's climate change, um, you know, whether it's employment, uh, economic stability, all those different things that are really, really important to voters, you know, not just Gen Z voters, but voters of all ages, right? Um, you know, all Americans have a vested interest in wanting to 
uh, retire securely and wanting to be able to access healthcare and wanting to be able to exercise their right to vote. There are foundational things that, um, you know, regardless of your party affiliation or non-party affiliation, everyone has an interest in really advocating for. Um, so I'm hopeful that in the future that we can sort of coalesce at, at the very least uh, around those issues. Um, I'm not going to speculate about future uh, elections uh, just because uh, honestly of the two I've seen, um, you know, they've been, they've been, they've been really something. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I would be really be interested to hear uh, your thoughts though. Great. Thank you so much. I'll share my thoughts at the end. Dr. Robinson. So like Max, I am hopeful that we can move beyond this point and have civil dialogue again. However, I'm also realistic in the sense that in order to have that civil dialogue, there has to also be an openness and an honesty. And there has to be some reckoning with some of the issues that for so long we swept under the rug and pretended didn't really exist. For instance, looking at some of the race relation issues and looking at civil rights and how there are lots of people who would like to believe and still do believe that we live in a colorblind society and that everyone is treated equally and protected fairly under the laws. And we know that that's not the case. To where in order to move on, there has to be not just some honesty that is introduced into the conversation, but there has to be some action behind it. There has to be some reconciliation that really moves us forward as a country and really looking at even thinking about issues of environmental justice, really looking at how those things are deeply connected also to race and justice in very real ways to where until we have those conversations and are willing to have those conversations, moving forward will just be a, a band-aid to a gaping hole to where I think, and, and that's why I'm very excited about how Gen Z is really kind of pushing that conversation and saying, we're not going to just settle for, we're going to wait for the reforms and we're going to wait our turn and we're going to hope for the best. They're really saying, no, we're going to force the conversation that should have been forced decades ago. Um, so I, I am hopeful that we're going to get to that, but it's going to take a lot more pressure. And it does take voting, absolutely. It has to have some voting behind it. It has to be people that are elected in those positions who have the power to start those conversations and move those conversations in that direction. But I, I do think that in order to move there, we can't just continue to bury our heads in the sand and pretend that everything is fine, that you know this is just a fluke of an election because Trump is not, President Trump and the rhetoric and stuff that's come out of it is not the, the, the situation, like it's not like the first of it, like he's not the, the beginning of that. But rather it is a insidious thing that has been brewing for so long and that's why his face is so energized because these are the things that they've always wanted to say and now feel empowered to say. So he's a symptom of a deeper system of, of oppression and power and how all of those things manifest themselves in real ways to where now we have to deal with it now that it's out in the open. And I honestly think that that's a good thing. 
now it's out there, now we can deal with it, and now we can begin those conversations of how do we move forward as a country and how do we reconcile and be a better country. I love it. Dr. Parati, take us home. I think that was so well said. Um, my father grew up in fascist Italy and he didn't come to the United States until he was 31. Um, so his country had been broken. It had been broken by the fascist movement and he was completely swept up into it. His whole youth, the best years of his life, all of this was swirling around him. And I guess growing up, I was able to see how um, an injury like that just doesn't go away in a society. And it also has an impact on the lives of all the people who live in the society. So I, I think that whatever happens in this election, we have in, um, experienced a real, a, a real series of injuries here. We've had these wounds ripped open, uh, wounds having to do with racial injustice, having to do with uh, economic inequality. Um, and I agree that it shouldn't be swept under the rug. You know, the greatest generation are famous for having swept everything under the rug, no matter where they were in the United States or they're growing up in other countries. I would just hope. So, so my first point or, or observation is that we have to recognize that we've really been through something awful and it's changed our society. Um, and we need to have some kind of healing. Um, and secondly, I, would, I can only speak for the community that I'm a part of, where I'm working a lot with young people and a lot of young progressive people. I would, um, and I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, that there has to be um, a commitment to listen. There have been people saying things we don't agree with and we feel as if they're, they're not informed. But the way to deal with those things is not to call those other people a basket of deplorables. There are some underlying interests that account for why people supported President Trump, that, that why people um, became attracted to this sort of populist and, and even authoritarian way of thinking. And we have to have our ears open for what caused that. Um, what, even though, again, I, I completely agree with um, Professor Robinson that this was a symptom. He would, this was a symptom of an, a set of deeper underlying problems in our society. So again, we need to force the conversation, but in the course of having that conversation, we need to listen to each other. I love it. Thank you all so much for this phenomenal conversation, even for myself, being the parent of a young child, you know, it used to be that thing where we don't talk about race and we don't talk about politics. I'm changing that my Gen Z students have really kind of helped me to kind of change that narrative recently, um, where I have different age children uh, 21, 20, and then I have the nine-year-old. And the 21, 20, they're off, they're gone, they're doing their own thing, they're, they're having their own learning. But for my nine-year-old, I'm like, no, no, let's have a conversation about race. What does it feel like to be the only Black girl in your class? Or no, no, let's have a conversation about President Trump versus President Biden. And just trying to be as objective as I possibly can with her, let her know that it's okay to get this out in the open. It's okay to have a conversation. But 
we have to be civil. And like Dr. Parati and Dr. Robinson and Max, you all said, we have to be willing to listen to each other because if we don't listen, we're just gonna be these cats chasing their tails around and around and around all over again. So we don't want that. We wanna to continue to move our great country forward. So with that, thank you all again. This was so awesome. I had such a great time talking and learning from you all. I hope you enjoyed. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you today. If you would like to our listening public to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please feel free to email studentaffairs at hostra.edu with the subject line Pride Perspectives. Again, that's studentaffairs at hostra.edu. Speaking of future episodes, we'll have new ones up every other Wednesday on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever else you get podcasts. Your perspective is important, and we're always looking to highlight student voices. If you have feedback or questions to today's episode, write in. We may respond in the next edition. Looking ahead to the next episode, we'll be talking about balancing parenthood and college life. We'll be joined by some Hastra experts, as well as non-traditional college students, as we look at navigating that delicate type route. Again, thank you for being here. My name is Jillian Atkinson, and this has been Pride Perspectives. Thank you for listening. Happy voting, everybody.